Today's scripture reading is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The king of heaven, earth, sets themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord saying to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Can you believe it? It's Advent season. Where did the year go? Um, we're already seeing houses decorated with lights now, and um, there's blow-up Santa Clauses, and we see rooftop reindeer. I'm sure you've got your traditions you do over the holiday season. You've got your movies that you watch, and maybe you even have a neighbor, or maybe one of you guys, have a, a nativity set with baby Jesus, and Mary, and Joseph, and the shepherds and the wise men, they're all bowing down in a posture of worship before their king. And so that's the theme that we're focusing on um, throughout this Advent, is the kingship of God come to earth to rescue his people and redeem his creation. And it's a story that's foretold, among other places, in the Psalms, and so that's what we're going to be looking through. And woven throughout this amazing prayer book, is a story of this coming king, the Messiah, who has appointed over against the kings of the earth. And so we're kicking off this Advent to what we just read in, in Psalm 2. And the message is profoundly simple. Our God reigns. And we just need to hear that. And Psalm 2 is one of the most oft-quoted most alluded to psalms in the New Testament. It's that important. The church fathers who lived roughly the first 600 years of the church, it was one of the most important psalms to them. And why not? Psalms 1 and 2 set the tone for the rest of the psalms. And if, you, and if you think about it, really it should set the tone for our lives. Because if you think about it, Psalm 1, it, 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 orients the readers to receive the whole collection as instruction. You know, you got verses like, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or you got verses like, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so where Psalm 1 describes the man or woman that God is looking for to follow him. Psalm 2 describes God anointing this person to be king, to lead his people. And it sets the tone for the rest of the Psalms because kingship of God is such a dominant theme. 
But let's be honest, kingship is not something we Americans relate to. We have, there are branches in Christianity even where they've replaced the word kingdom with kingdom. Have you heard of that? Because it's easier to relate to Jesus as a brother, as a friend, but as king? We have branches of government, you know, co-equal branches of government. We have the president. We have the, the Congress. We have the Supreme Court because we want to hold those in power accountable, right? If you think about it, um, the Virginia state flag, I want to show you the Virginia state flag. It represents what we think of kings. Here you got a king down and out for the count with the crown rolling off its head, right? And the woman represents virtue. And what this flag is saying is virtue has vanquished tyranny. And the Latin is six semper tyrannis, which is thus always to the tyrant, okay? That's how we Americans think about kings. We don't relate to kings. But what's interesting is God knows this. And despite knowing this, and despite a long history of abuse of power, it still doesn't change his plan to anoint a king. He will install a king. He has installed a king on earth for all time. He's not going to change government for this. And the good news is he did find someone who is a worthy candidate. Someone who represents Psalm 1. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the good news. Your God reigns. But do you feel that? I want you to feel that. If we can go beyond being Americans and go into the economy of God's kingdom, let's be encouraged with what kind of kingship God seeks to establish. So our first encouragement from Psalm 2 about God's kingship is our God reigns despite circumstances. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. You know, um, I'm thinking about this in terms of when we read the Psalms and our devotions. There are some Psalms that just, we just easily connect, right? We even hold on to certain Psalms with our dear life, right? But if you keep reading, there are some Psalms where it's just like, what? It just doesn't, it just leaves your head scratching because we're so far removed from time and culture. And after all, these psalms have been written 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. So I want you to imagine 3,000 years from now, okay, the year, let's imagine uh, archaeologists have dug up this old newspaper headline that says, the bears, no, I'm sorry, the giants have thrashed the bears, 47 to 7. All right? The year is 5022. You can imagine the, the, the level of technology, the science, um, the, the, the culture. You, you can imagine such a different world. English is lost by then. 
But we've got language experts able to extrapolate what the headline says. And it is a sad future because now football is lost too. Now, if you don't have the context, how are you going to interpret this text? The giants thrashed the bears. Archaeologists are left just scratching their heads. Well, these people in 2022, well, this is actually an old 1950s headline. But nonetheless, these people in the 20th century, they're superstitious. They, 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 they've got a mythology here. They believe in giants. They're, they're primitive. And apparently in their mythology, giants hate bears. And what is this? This is such a massive crowd, and they're looking at something. Oh, I know. Maybe in this mythology, they're reenacting it, and giants are killing these evil bears. And so you got 56,000 people because, uh, coming to this, because this is really important. If you don't have the historical context... You, you don't understand what this is going on. We already know football, so we know this is just a game. This is the score, 47 to 7. The Giants is just a mascot, right? I think in the same way with the Psalms, we can miss the, the, the context. And Psalm 2 might be one of those Psalms that leaves you scratching your head, and it's like, uh, in, your private, in your devotions, you might go, okay, and you just kind of move on to the next Psalm that you might connect with. In this times where the, the original readers, they've got the original context. No one needs to explain it to them. There is a concept of kingship that we have to understand. There are two different kinds of kings. One is called the suzerain. The suzerain is the, 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 the superior king. And then there you have the subordinate king called the vassal. Okay? And typically there's a covenant between these two kings. The local vassals are those who pay tribute to the suzerain. And they rule on his behalf regionally. So you have all these different vassals. And in return, the suzerain provides military protection and all sorts of blessings from his wealth onto the vassals in return. And so as long as they keep this covenant, you've got a kingdom here. Okay? Now keep that in mind. The psalmist sets up God, the Lord, as the suzerain. He's the creator of the universe. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it. And image, as image bearers, we are the vassals. We pay tribute with our worship, and we rule on behalf of God throughout the world. Right? So we live in a world, though, where nations don't want to be vassals. Nations want to be suzerains. Every person is born with this desire. We want the tribute. We want to set our own agenda. And it's because of this, Scripture says, and because of this self-centeredness, the world is so broken. It's why the psalmist begins the psalm with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? It's like, seriously? You're royal vassals. You have access to all of God's wealth and blessings and goodness, and you would turn against that? Why? And yet in our attempts to burst the bonds 
to cast away our cords. We foolishly cut ourselves away from the very source of life necessary for the flourishing of mankind. But note this. Not all vassals are predisposed to go against their suzerain. In verse 2, there is his anointed. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach, or transliterated, it's his Messiah. And the ESV translators are trying to make a theological interpretation for you by, by capitalizing anointed. They're like, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. But I'm like, hold on, yes, but not yet. Because the original readers didn't have that luxury. The original readers, in their immediate context, they're looking to David or one of the kings at the time as the anointed one. But the problem is all these kings, as you know, and David, did succumb to sin, did pass away. And they led God's people to be like the other nations. And the whole nation broke that suzerain vessel treaty, that that covenant. And because of that, Israel and Judah no longer had an anointed one. They were in exile. And so for years and even centuries, the people of God, think about this, the people of God read Psalm 2 kingless. And yet God said in past tense, you have gone against my anointed. He's talking past tense as if there is a king. The good news is God reigns despite circumstances. It might as well happen now. These counterfeit suzerains, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, these are counterfeits. There will be a future Messiah who will serve the true suzerain and he'll lead God's people. Okay? So, Despite traumatic and dark times like the exile, the second encouragement for God's kingship is that our God reigns with unshakable confidence. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this is good news because... Divine laughter reverberates all throughout a dark history of humanity. He laughs. Because when the suffering people of God hears it, they have hope. You might go, what's this going on? Why is he not taking this seriously? He is taking it seriously. But the suffering people of God, they have hope because they realize that conspiring kings of the earth, their spiritual enemies, they're no threat to God. He has no worry that his kingdom will crumble under their might. He will build a new world with love and justice and beauty and goodness. He will be glorified. See, God's laughter is meant to put the dark times in perspective. It's kind of like if you have a little kid and when that kid hits his head, or my my kid, when he hits his head, and he has, there's that brief moment when they have to decide what they're going to do in response. Have you seen this before with little kids? Their eyes widen up. How should I respond? 
Now, you could be like, oh my goodness, and make it worse. Or you'd be like, it's okay, you know, and chuckle. And then my kid, anyway, will look at me and go, ah, that hurt. But it's not the end of the world, right? In the same way, God is saying to you when he laughs at, his, at your enemies, at his enemies, it's going to be all right. And I know there are stories of pain throughout this room. I know there are stories of trauma, stories of broken relationships, of betrayal. I know. I know there are stories of physical ailment. I know there are stories of addiction. And what I want you to hear this morning is through it all, our God reigns with unshakable confidence. He laughs at our enemy. It's the same enemy that Pastor Nathan had talked about last week. Your God laughs at him. But I want you to see, where is he laughing from? That's important. He's laughing while sitting in the heavens. Don't miss that. You mustn't imagine heaven as a geographical place, as if there's an old man up there in the clouds sitting down looking on us like Mary Poppins. Okay, you'll miss out what the psalmist meant. Heaven throughout the Old Testament is a picture of God's throne room. Isaiah 66 1 says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. When you think of heaven, don't think of a nice place that you get to go to when you die. Think highest authority. That's what the scriptures is talking about. Because what's higher than the heavens? Nothing. It's the perfect symbol of God's authority. And so what we're saying here is God is laughing from the highest authority. Anyone who dares go against him is of an inferior place. They have no authority over God. That's what you can't miss in your dark times. God reigns with unshakable confidence. And so it's from this apex that God's laughter turns into wrath in verse 5. And unfortunately, the wrath of God has become a controversial subject. I know some Christians have just done away with that because isn't God the God of love? Isn't he the God of infinite kindness and patience? What do you mean the wrath of God? And yet you see it all throughout Scripture. You you have to ignore Scripture, which I dare not do. So what are we talking about here? I think Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf says it best when he writes about the wrath of God in a powerful and weighty book called um, Exclusion and Embrace, he says this, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In his scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. Like any other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. 
What Wolf is trying to say here is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. After all, didn't Paul say to the church in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we have to remember, when we talk about the wrath of God, it's not just any wrath in general, right? It's not just the nature of wrath, but it's a very specific kind of wrath. It is the wrath of a king, when we're talking about the wrath of God. Proverbs 19.12 says, O king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like the dew of the grass. Notice in that verse, God's wrath doesn't immediately maul his enemies. You've heard a lion roar before, right, in person? It's, it's scary. The thing is with God's wrath, it's never impulsive. Never. It's always patient, but it is not harmless. There is teeth, after all, behind the growling. But when it comes to God's people, his wrath, like his laughter, is meant to actually encourage them, to give them hope. If you think about it, a cub, when she hears the growl of the lion, she only recognizes the voice. When she hears a growl, she says, oh, that's dad. And so innocently, she comes up to dad, cuddles with him, and paws at him and plays with him. Because she knows with that growl, he's protecting the the lion pride. In the same way, God's royal wrath protects the order and goodness of his kingdom. But he does it in his own timing and in his own way. So the bottom line with the laughter and wrath is God's, with laughter and wrath is that God reigns with unshakable confidence. He proclaims in verse 6, I have set my king, his vassal, on Zion, my holy hill. Well, again, hold the phone. Like, let's say you're in the exile. There was no king. Why would God talk in the past tense? Again, because his unshakable confidence is as good as done. The same way for us, Christ has ascended and he is no longer here with us. We have the Holy Spirit now, but we hope for His return. It is as good as done. The King is coming. And He's just not going anywhere. He's coming back to Mount Zion. Why is that important? That's the highest point of Jerusalem. And again, it's not about the geography. It's about the symbol. It's a symbol of height. And Micah 4.1 says, and it prophesies, that one day... Mount Zion will be the highest mountain in all of the world. And someone might go, what? Higher than Mount Everest? No, 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 again, you're missing the point. Not topography, we're talking about authority. There will be no higher authority. One day, from the exile Israel point of view, they're going to expect a king to say, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. If you know Matthew 28, 18, you know that that's already been said. And it's true today. 
So up to this point in Psalm 2, we've only seen God respond to what the nations have initiated in their opposition. But now we have a turning point in the middle part of the psalm. It's God's turn to initiate. So we now come to the third encouragement of God's kingship. And this is, our God reigns by setting the agenda. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The suzerain of the universe, the maker of the heaven and earth, decrees that all vassals or all mankind made in the image of God attempting to build a separate and autonomous kingdoms, they will not succeed. He will not tolerate idolatry. He will give His glory to no other. There will only be one legitimate kingdom that will last for eternity and cover the whole earth. There will only be one legitimate king with the power to break the bondage of sin and cancel its debt. This king who says to our ancient foe and to death itself, you are vanquished. And this Christmas, we celebrate this son who has come. The story of the son It's all part of God's agenda. That's why it's such good news that he has set the agenda and no one else can turn this agenda back. Here's another cultural context we Westerners miss. When the Bible talks about the Son of God, don't just think about the second person of the Trinity. Think about King. It was very common in the ancient world to refer to the King as the Son of God including Israel. There's even a Roman coin of Caesar Augustus with his face. And in the Latin, it says Divi F. There's an, it's a Latin abbreviation, which is Latin for, or Latin that says Divi Filial, which is the son of God. Caesar Augustus is son of God, meaning he is king. But today, who's more famous Caesar Augustus, a brilliant military commander who expanded the Roman Empire, a shrewd and successful emperor who implemented all sorts of government policies that had boosted Rome's economy and strengthened its stronghold. Easily up to that point in history, the most powerful man the world had ever seen. Or Jesus of Nazareth. an obscure carpenter from the remote part of the world who slept in a manger for a crib. If you look at the highest selling book of all time, even today, Caesar Augustus is but a footnote in the book of, in the Gospel of Luke. The birth of the baby that we celebrate for Christmas will grow up And here at his baptism, as the heavens are opened up to him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Again, don't just think of Trinity, although that's true. This is my king. This is my vassal, God says. And this king will gather up his disciples at the beginning point 
to launch his agenda for the kingdom of God. And he'll take three of them up to a high mountain and he'll transfigure to, to reveal his true divine nature. And as the clouds envelope them, a voice will come out of it declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus in that famous verse we all know in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he gave his only king, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, if you replace king or son with king anywhere in the New Testament, you'll see God's royal agenda. Jesus is the Father's one and only King. And in, in this agenda, it's always included the entire world. It's never meant to be isolated. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The world is the Father's to give. He's the suzerain. And so that's why Jesus commissioned his apostles. He commissions us, go and make disciples of all nations. Be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Why? Because he holds the iron rod mentioned in verse 9. And what's that iron rod? It's, it's the scepter, which is an emblem of power and authority. And it's not our great suzerain that's going to break apart because nations have decided to break their bonds with him. It is they who will, in verse 9. So it makes me ask, what, are, what of our hopes and our dreams apart from God? It's broken and fragmented. Because nothing lasts forever in this world except one thing, God's agenda. And it's such good news. And this shows our fourth encouragement of God's kingship. Our God reigns with a promise. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, now, kings and vassals no longer are initiating here. Kings and vassals are called to respond to what God, the suzerain, has initiated. And they, and let's examine, not just they, us, let's examine ourselves. We as royal image bearers, we've started out foolishly trying to attempt to break the bond with the suzerain of the universe. But now, in this part of the psalm, we are called to be wise, and right now, we're called to serve the Lord, the suzerain, and kiss the son, the vassal of all vassals. And you can imagine, a, when you say kiss the son, what do you mean? You can imagine a subject kneeling and kissing the ring of the king, indicating, yes, I will be subject to you. I will be loyal to you. I will submit to your authority. This morning, ask yourselves, who or what is your greatest authority? Don't deceive yourselves. How you live your lives 
we'll give you your answers. And if you can identify anything besides the Lord Jesus Christ as a higher authority, quickly repent. Do not delay. Give that over to him because the promise is this, you will find refuge in him. His kingdom is the answer to all the problems of this world today. One day, it will be the only kingdom. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is then when all tears will be wiped away and the world will only know truth, goodness, and beauty for all of eternity. And this future is yours. And this invitation to participate in the mission to make this future a reality is yours if you kiss the sun. Let's pray. Father, uh, as I think about this, even the word father is a term of kingship in the ancient world. And as a church, we confess that to you. You are king. It is good news. And you have sent your son Jesus to be the vassal of all vassals, the king of kings. And you have called us to rule beside him. So we hold on to dear life to those promises that you laugh at our enemies, that you will have the victory. And this Christmas, we celebrate your son Jesus as the beginning point to inaugurate the kingdom as we continue it. And we know someday it will be consummated. It will be the end. We will see that day. Until then, in our dark times, hold on to us. Let us see your kingship. It's in Christ's name we pray for his sake. Amen.